Backchat. 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 Politics and current affairs. Backchat. 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 Your alternative to talk back. Yes, indeed, you are listening to Backchat here on FBI Radio, the freshest rap of news and current affairs. I'm Swetha Das. And I'm Shami Sivasubramanian. As always, we're going to give you the news you haven't heard on your airwaves. First up is Kate Munro from Youth Action to explain why young people have faced falling incomes over the last decade and how the pandemic has worsened this for us. After that, we hear from internet researcher Dr. Crystal Erbedeen on seizing the memes of production in coronavirus content hubs called Meme Factories. But as always, we want to hear from you. How has the pandemic affected your income and savings? Do you have enough money for a rainy day? Have you dipped into your super? Join the conversation on 0409-945-945 or tweet us at Backshed FBI. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talk back. Over the last decade, we've seen a generational divide in wages. A report from the Productivity Commission found that incomes for people aged between 15 and 24 fell by nearly 2% a year between 2008 and 2018. Not surprisingly, it was the opposite situation for over 35s, whose income had only grown in that same period. With competitive job markets, low savings and limited financial aid, how will youth wages fare now we're in a recession. Our first guest is CEO of Youth Action New South Wales, Kate Monroe, to explain what economic prospects for young people will look like in a post-COVID world. Hi there, Kate. Hey, how are you doing? Doing very well. Glad you're with us. <laughs> Thanks for having me. So why have young Australians suffered a decade of falling incomes? Okay, so look, thank you. I need to preface everything I say with, so my background is in social work and youth work, so I'm definitely not um, an economist. Um, So my lens is very much in that um, advocacy space for young people, and that's what Youth Action's role is, is to advocate for young people in New South Wales. So um, I will answer to the best of my abilities, uh, um, but productivity reports are confusing at the best of times. (laughs) <laughs> so I think, look, you spoke about what the, the wage the impact has been and it's definitely very clear that it's gone down. And I guess, look, the reason that stood out for me reading that report is very much about, look, it's driven by longer-term trends of the job market that disadvantage young people. So it's not, it's not young people themselves and it's, not, it's structural forces that sit outside and, and surround young people. So I thought that's really important because the answer is, it's very much about structural change, not about things necessarily that individual young people can do. Um, and so I guess what my understanding is that it's it's very much related to there's a, um, a, sub, a supply-demand issue. So that supply of people looking for work has outstripped the number of people who can offer jobs. And in that situation, older workers with longer experience in the sector will always have a benefit that comes from that. Um, So I think that that's probably one of the biggest things to get our heads around in terms of advocating, and that's our role is advocating for young people and what can be improved. I guess, look, the other part of it is around part-time, you know, the flow-ons from that. So part-time work has increased, which has meant that, you know, again, young people are are very much in that that area. It's very much part-time work is where young people are, casualised workforce. So of course their incomes are going to be uh, going to be hit and doubly smashed with the um, 
effects of the pandemic as well. Mm. You know, the Productivity Commission report also shows that retirees and those aged 65 and onwards did much better with their incomes up more than 3% a year. Is this evidence of a generational divide? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, I think that that's, it's incredibly clear that there are structural and systemic economic forces that advantage older generations. And again, I think that the I think the thing to wrap our heads around, and particularly for young people, for people who advocate for young people, for older generations who should and need to be supporting young people, is that these economic forces, they're not laws of nature. You know, they're not set in stone. So these are policy choices made by decision makers. And that's why I think it's so important that that young people who are the ones who are most impacted have their voices heard and that older generation, so my generation and the generations above me, are, are working really hard to advocate to change that situation. It's not set in stone. So why do you think it is young people who are most impacted by an economic downturn, as was the case with the GFC? Yeah, look, I think that that's um, very much the, some of those things that I mentioned, so the casualisation of their workforce. So young people are always disadvantaged in, in those kind of situations. Um, you know, they're the first in, they're the, you know, last in, first to go when things get bad. I think that the other thing that was um, the productivity report spoke about is that it's very clear that getting into the workforce is actually the hardest part. So for young people, you know, it's their first jobs, they're new out of uni, they're new out of school. So it's the getting in bit that's incredibly difficult. So that's why this hits them even more. Older workers who maybe have some work history behind them, who have contacts, who have higher education or, you know, whatever skills and training they've achieved, the levels that they needed, they seem to be able to kind of hang on in the job market, whereas young people very much are disadvantaged from the beginning, from, from you know, getting in is the bit that's, that's really crucial. And I think that's where the advocacy work uh, really needs to be um, focusing is how do we get young people in for those, those you know, into those first roles. You're listening to Backchat on FBI Radio 94.5 FM with Swata and Shami. We're speaking with Kate Munro from Youth Action on how young people's wages have been hit even more by the pandemic. And we've got some texts in. Remember, you can text us in on 0409945945 or tweet us at Backchat FBI if you've got any comments or questions. So Daniel from Bankstown says... I cut back on avocados and I still can't afford a house, which is, um, <clears throat> I don't think avocados are going <laughs> to cut it, buddy. Nice try, though. <laughs> um, someone else has said, I've taken out my super. I just don't think I could have paid my rent if I didn't. Now, Kate, that's interesting because more than half a million Aussies have emptied their super accounts after the government allowed them early access. How will this impact young people moving forward? Yeah, look, and I'm going to be the first to admit superannuation and getting your head around it is tough for everybody. I think you could survey most people you know and they would struggle to explain how super works and and the the, the kind of um, the mechanics that sit behind that. I think, I mean, everybody, you know, the general um, accepted wisdom is that the longer you have money in super, the more it will grow. So obviously taking something out has an exponential effect at the other end. Um, but I think the also the other side of it is young people are also in a situation um, where they have the longevity of a working career where they can they can rectify that I suppose so there's some good news um, there is some good news in in that area I think that 
look, the best thing I can say is get get advice about super. That's one of those, you know, those lessons that, you know, people tell you when you first start working out, I wish I'd done it. Um, lots of super funds offer free advice or talk to people you know, but get advice about it because they're actually, I think that there's a lot of life choices that can impact your super. So having time out of having time out of work, having your money in the wrong fund, having casual work. So there's a lot of things that, that impact it. So it's it's a really good idea. I mean, financial literacy is, an, is a really important idea for everyone. Um, but getting your head around, okay, if I'd made some choices and I recognise that test that, um, yeah, people needed money to live on. So that's that that's a, a really important choice to make. And, and I think that's okay. And then look at, well, how do I rectify that? What do I need to be thinking about long term? Because over the arc of a career for a young person, there's potentially 40 you know, 50 years of working left to rectify that decision. Whereas I think for workers at the other end, um, the opportunity to, to benefit, from, benefit from that exponential growth is, is reduced. So speaking about long-term, what are the long-term effects on career development if young people are contained to low-paying and low-skilled jobs? Yeah, so the productivity report, again, spoke really clearly about, and, and there's been discussion about that concept of labour market scarring. So again, I guess the the damage that's done by not being able to advance in your, you know, in your chosen area, and young people again thinking about that. If young people are are in low entry level jobs, they're in jobs that maybe aren't related to their career because they they need work to pay their bills. Um, it's that getting those getting that foot in the door that's the really difficult bit. So I I think that. I mean, at Youth Action and many, many other people, this is where a lot of our advocacy work is focused because it really is about for society to, to work at its best. We need all young people to reach their full potential. So we need to have policies that are changed to address that structural disadvantage. We need to have resources directed into programs and initiatives that are helping young people along that whole spectrum from, from in school, so educational support, life skills and personal development support right through to job readiness and job creation. So I think um, there are many, many recommendations in research and great examples of programs that are doing that work. So it's it's, it's about us uniting in our voices and, and directing that towards policymakers about what... I, don't, I, I, I keep going back to these are not laws of nature. We can predict that these things can happen, but they're not, they're not given. You know, we need to be everybody. We've all got a part in in yelling and screaming and demanding that decisions be made to, to do things differently. And it's definitely within the power of policymakers to make differences. And I do, I want to really highlight that there are groups of young people who are already doing it really tough before the pandemic. There are groups of socially excluded groups of young people, young people who are tackling you know, mental health issues, trauma issues, whose educational engagement was problematic. All of those groups really, they need... They, that, you know, they need policy makers to be deciding um, on initiatives that will support them and bring them up to the, the same level as other, other groups of young people. So let's hope that young people do get the support they desperately need at this really tough time. Thank you so much, Kate, for being on the show with us. No, thank you. Thank you for having me. And look, I just, again, keep talking about it. Keep yelling it. I cannot encourage young people enough. Get active, get vocal, engage with all of the adults you know over 25 and and demand that we start addressing these structural issues. That was CEO of Youth Action, Kate Monroe, on how under 35s are bearing the brunt of income disparity before and after the pandemic.
But don't turn that dial up. Next, Backchat producer Nicole Ilyaguyeva chats meme factories with internet researcher Dr. Crystal Aberdeen. But first, this banger by Adelaide artist Takei Medza. This is Shook. It is absolutely laughable. The woman's off her tree. Backchat, your alternative to talkback. Thought you were sharing... A unique, relatable meme between your friends? Well, what if I told you it was actually part of a grander network? Meme factories. <laughs> well, meme factories can shape social media, cultural references and public opinion. So how have these groups used their platform to respond to the pandemic? Our producer, Nicole Ilya Guyeva, spoke to Internet Studies researcher Dr. Crystal Aberdeen to explain what meme factories are and how they pivoted to corona content, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region. Check it out. Thanks so much for joining us today, Dr. Aberdeen. To start off, I think we all know what memes are, but as soon as you say the term meme factory, I at least visualise a Willy Wonka type situation. So it would be great if you could break down what a meme factory actually is. Sometimes it is like that visualisation you have exactly, but other times it isn't. In brief, meme factories are a coordinated network of creators or accounts who produce and host content that can be perceived as memes. And these are contents that allow subtext to be embedded and allow viewers to pass new context. So when I say a factory, what we're focusing here is on the network and how organized such meme factories are. There are different varieties of them, and I'm happy to chat about the different types. Yes, please tell us what the different types of meme factories are. So in brief, there are three different types of meme factories. The first one would be hobbyist niche meme factories. These are usually social media accounts either run by one person on several platforms or several different people co-running one platform who write and draw and produce memes based on a very niche topic, sometimes in the vein of what young people like to call dank memes, sometimes in the vein of a different format like comics and illustrations. The second type of meme factories are meme generator and aggregator groups. These usually take the form of a massive group, thousands of people in an online Facebook group or in a Telegram or WhatsApp chat, who take time to curate and share memes in the group as a way to inspire each other to create and generate more memes within the group to get feedback from each other and then to seed this into various platforms. But perhaps the most prominent and the most common meme factory is the commercial meme factory. These are usually digital and news media agencies, sometimes advertising firms, um, who primarily produce memes with the intention of embedding a commercial message into them. Sometimes these are commercial messages from clients and partners trying to push for a specific product or service. And other times, their partners may be others trying to push for various social and cultural causes or even political messages. Why did you pick Singapore and Malaysia for your research? My research generally focuses in the Asia-Pacific region, looking at Australia, East Asia, as well as Southeast Asia. Having studied many different types of internet practices in Southeast Asia, A lot of us have this understanding that many of these countries and governments have a more contentious relationship to media control. 
So unlike our free media here in Australia, there are many countries in Southeast Asia where the mainstream media outlets have a tighter reign by the government, and there may even be a host of guidelines, laws, and acts that do not allow citizens to freely express their views on specific issues. Now that memes are a vehicle that spread far and wide, and also the fact that they often carry humor and entertainment on the surface, they become a very ripe vehicle for young people in countries like Singapore and Malaysia to share their views in unorthodox ways, clouded through humor, watered down by entertainment, but also being able to allow people to decode the several layers of meaning embedded into the meme above and beyond the mere humor and entertainment that it delivers. How have memes been used during COVID-19? One of the latest articles that I've recently published has looked at how meme factories have been using different types of humorous vehicles, images, pictures, videos, in order to promote public health messaging. So in the beginning, these were memes that were promoting and trying to normalize the new practices we had at play. For instance, safe distancing measures in public, um, very elaborate hand-washing techniques to keep yourself safe. But then later on, with the extended period of self-isolation at home, many of these meme factories also took to entertaining people stuck at home, um, producing rather self-deprecating but also self-jesting and laughing and jokes about the different types of struggles we have, such as, you know, standing up in the middle of a very official professional Zoom call only to reveal that you're not wearing pants or you're still in pajamas. <laughs> so there's entertainment here. There's also information and education. But towards the later stage of the COVID cycle, many of the, these memes became vehicles for political conversations and for calling out issues to do with racism and xenophobia in this space. You mentioned memes have been used to give people information about COVID-19, but there's also the risk of them being used to spread misinformation. What are some hoaxes or weird conspiracies that have been spread during this time? Oh, this is a very big issue of research. One that I often quote is this very niche meme in a Facebook group where young people were sticking pictures of chili seeds and chili plants saying, the best way to combat COVID-19 is to rub these chilies all over your hands and your face. And the subtext here was that obviously these fruits would burn every time you touch your eyes or your face and you would therefore be like discouraged from touching your face or discouraged from being um, careless with your movements. But very quickly, in a matter of days and weeks, I saw this meme from a Reddit group and from a Facebook group being shared in WhatsApp groups by people who were outside of this demographic. These were elderly Asian parents and grandparents who transformed this meme and suddenly the subtext was, there is heatiness and there is spice in such fruits that can help to combat the virus or that can help to boost your immune system. So here there's a combination of grandmotherly folklore, of some traditional beliefs to do with culinary practices, but also mixed up with the original humor and sarcasm in the niche humor groups that ended up birthing these conspiracy theories um, that eating chilies or spicy foods could keep the virus away. So something that started out in Maine as humor for a different group of people without context and also remixed with their own belief systems and practices became a hoax that many young people had to convince their parents and grandparents was just not scientifically proven. 
Yes, this definitely sounds like something that would travel in my WhatsApp family chat group. <laughs> For sure. I actually have a friend who creates memes and、uh, he has quite a big following and has had issues with plagiarism. Is it something your research has focused on? And if so, have you found ways to combat it? I think feelings towards copyright and ownership and plagiarism in a meme ecology are quite fraught, and it also depends on who you're asking this question to. Many of the hobbyist niche meme factories are very happy to just see their contents and have people understand their style or identify their sketching aesthetic,、um, and they're happy just for their contents to be freely circulated. After all, most of the time, the success of a meme is measured by how widely it has travelled. But when money, commerce, and ownership of artistic rights come into play, here is where it becomes a little bit more sensitive. There have been instances where memes made by hobbyist groups or for fun have ended up being recouped, reappropriated, or even just outright plagiarized and stolen by meme factories, who end up making quite a sizable amount of income off producing memes for their clients. In other instances, a lot of meme groups and meme factories pride themselves in spearheading conversations. In my research, for example. It was one of the meme groups in Singapore that was the first to point out that calling the coronavirus a Chinese virus or an Wuhan meme was racist and no longer acceptable. And they did so by correcting their previous memes and updating the language, even in their humor. Now, when this was stolen or it was、uh, assumed by other groups and preached to be their original contribution, then there were a few turf wars here. Over who gets to own、um, this changing of the discourse, or who gets to own the fact that they were the first to spot something with potential and turn it into a meme. Oftentimes, these disputes、um, die out on the internet because it's not easy to consolidate these conversations. But sometimes you do see meme factories backtracking, maybe editing captions or adding comments to say, "Picture originally supplied by X." Or it's been told to me that this was an original post by this person, and that's where the scandal ends. You've touched on this before, but why have memes become so popular? Well, there are so many reasons to this.、Um, let's try and think about the big, broad picture. The first would be massive changes in internet culture. When I was growing up as a teen, my memes took textual formats. Memes at a time were like these list of ten questions of your childhood. It would be funny jokes that you could mix up and change up and share on and retweet next to the, to the next person. But as new social media features became available and new platforms came into play, we saw, for instance, with the proliferation of Instagram, that visual images became a more popular format for memes. Above and beyond just being able to superimpose text onto images and make them macros memes, like the cat memes or the lol cat memes that we're so familiar with. With Instagram, the memes got a little bit more sophisticated, when they could take any format as long as they belong to a coherent hashtag or message. Any time there is a natural disaster or there is a big crisis happening in a city, these hashtags trend on Twitter and on Instagram. And especially on Instagram, you see different formats of these memes taking place, where people share illustrations, pictures of where they used to be when they last visited the spot as a tourist. Or even idealized, romanticized icons of the city that they now miss. So this is also a genre of meme. 
But now, more updated, if we were to also include GIFs, moving images, and sound, especially with TikTok, memes are a completely different format here. They often take the form of sound. Audio memes are a mainstay on TikTok. Even dances can be a meme that proliferate on video platforms. So the platforms themselves allow us to diversify in how we express ourselves and how we play with meme culture. Okay, last question. Uh, you have put so much research into memes, so naturally, I would love to find out what your favorite meme is. Oh, you're making me choose my favorite child. Okay, <laughs> let's see. This might reveal my age, but back in the days when Vine was still a thing, my favorite Vine was of this little girl in the park, and she faced the camera and said, look at all these chickens. And then the camera panned to the grass patch only to reveal an entire field of pigeons. It was a peak of absurdist humor and Vine, and people would re-loop and play that over and over again. Well, recently, I found this original young girl on TikTok, now as a young adult woman, and she's got her own brand of humor there. She's continuing other memes, producing really good contents on TikTok, and her original Look at All These Chickens voice meme has also been taken up by very young TikTokers who are now remaking her video. So the, this recent find is perhaps a really nice nostalgic trip for me, and it was also really exciting given that my research now is pivoting to TikTok, looking at influencers as well as TikTok meme cultures. Wow, I love that. Thanks so much for speaking to me today, Dr. Abidin. No worries. Thank you for having me. That was internet researcher and doctor... That was internet researcher Dr. Crystal Abidin on how meme factories provide comic relief and public health info during the pandemic. Well, that's all the time we've got for the show today. Another big thanks to our producers, Natalie Sekolovska, Eden Faithful, Millie Roberts, Vanessa Lim and Nicole Ilya-Guyeva. And thanks again to our guests, Kate Munro and Dr. Crystal Eberdin. We'll catch you next week. But before we do, we're going to play a song. This is Eva Pora with Iza, Sierra and Major Lazer. Have a good weekend.